Welcome back to Tales of Southwest Michigan's Past. This is Michael Delaware. I am your host. And in this episode, I am going to explore the story of brother against brother in the Civil War. The story of Cornelius and Samuel Byington, with the connection to Southwest Michigan. So come along and join me. Well, I first came across this story when I began doing a lot of research out at Oak Hill Cemetery in Battle Creek, Michigan. And the first point of reference that I found that led me down this path of discovery into this story was a book called Veterans of Oak Hill Cemetery written by uh, Jim Jackson. He's been a guest on my show before. And he has little bios of all the veterans that are buried at Oak Hill Cemetery. I don't think it's all of them. He has a highlights of a lot of the ones that he was able to discover, but there's certainly more um, that are buried there that they're just maybe noted. And he did a pretty extensive amount of research on that book. And in the book, there's a Civil War major, and his name was Cornelius Byington. And what intrigued me about the story was that Cornelius has a fort named after him down in Knoxville, or he had at one time a fort named after him. And I wanted to find out more about this. It's like, here's a man who came from Battle Creek and went off to the Civil War, and he has a fort named after him in Knoxville. So, of course, I had to dig into the story at some point and find out more about it because I thought it was, well, it's a forgotten story that really needs more telling. And I wanted to see if I could test my skills on research after I'd become a little bit better at it to see if I could find more of his history. And it took me quite a while. I worked on this extensively in January of this year. So here is the story that I uncovered. And I discovered that there was a lot more to the story than just the life of Cornelius. But to understand the story of Cornelius Byington, it would probably be best to start by examining his family and how they came to live in Battle Creek. In 1846, there was a vacancy at the position of pastor for the Presbyterian Church in Battle Creek, whose congregation at that time was about 138 members. On August 25th of that year, a meeting was held with the trustees of the church, and it was agreed that a call was to be extended to Reverend Joel Byington to come to the emerging city of Battle Creek and take the pulpit for six months, with the view of becoming a permanent pastor. A collection was taken, and a sum of $450 was raised to secure Mr. Byington's transportation and settlement to Battle Creek. Now, in those days when they said they were going to make a call, they weren't making a telephone call. This was 1846. The word call in those days meant to send somebody to call upon them and knock on their door, basically. But evidently, they knew of the existence of Pastor Byington. Joel Byington was born in Hartford, Connecticut in 1783, and he'd been a minister for 25 years on the shores of Lake Champlain in Chasey, New York, and he was 63 years old when he answered the call and moved his family to Battle Creek. His family consisted of his wife, Delia, and seven children, Electa, Joel, Delia, Samuel, Charlotte, Cornelius, and the youngest, Agnes. His wife, Delia, was the daughter of Seth Storrs, a Vermont political and civil leader who took part in the founding of Middlebury College in Middlebury, Vermont. He was also a colonel in the Vermont militia. Her mother was Electa Strong, 
Her grandfather, John Strong, was a Vermont farmer who served as the Vermont Speaker of the House of Representatives in his time and was also in the militia during the French and Indian War and later was in the Revolutionary War and eventually attained the rank of Brigadier General. John Strong's brother, Samuel Strong, was a general who directed the Vermont militia during the War of 1812. So this kind of gives you an understanding of the sense of duty to country that this family held in terms of military service. Now, when the family moved to Battle Creek, it doesn't appear from records that the eldest son, Joel Byington Jr., or Samuel Byington, made the move to Battle Creek. Joel may have initially remained in New York, but he eventually became a merchant in New Orleans. Samuel remained in New York until about 1850, and then he moved to Montgomery, Alabama. So they were some of the older children that remained behind. When Reverend Joel Byington made his move to Battle Creek, his son Cornelius was 17 years old. The oldest daughter, Electa, was 26. Joel was 24. Delia was 23, Samuel was 21, and Charlotte was 19, and the youngest was 14, that was Agnes. Now, Reverend Joel Byington's wife, Delia, passed away in 1848, just two years after their arrival in Battle Creek. The Reverend, based on what I could find on him, appeared to have left his role as pastor here in Battle Creek shortly after her passing. However, he did remain a minister until the time of his death in 1856, where he passed away just before Christmas in Galena, Illinois. His body was returned to Battle Creek for burial, and he is laid to rest at Oak Hill Cemetery beside his wife. Delia Elvira, one of his daughters, married Benjamin Hinman in 1848, in the year that her mother passed away. They would go on to have two children, Charles and Julia, Delia passed away in 1881 at the age of 57 following an illness. It was in her obituary that there's a mention of Samuel living in Tennessee at that point, and her other brother, Joel, was living in California. The other reference that I found on Joel Byington came from Cornelius Byington's own diary, which I'll get into in a little bit. And he was also referred to in an 1871 document by Elder John Strong, of Northampton, Massachusetts. So I did a lot of digging when I was putting this story together. And I could go into some of the other daughters. Electa married another Hinman, uh, Henry Hinman, which was Benjamin's uh, younger brother. Uh, they got married in 1850. Charlotte married Frederick Pratt in 1849, and they founded the Elkhart Carriage Company down in Elkhart, Indiana. And she had three children and passed away in 1914 at the age of 87. Agnes, the youngest child, married Alexander Pope, a Scottish immigrant, and he was a hardware store merchant in Elkhart. And Agnes had two children, passed away in 1916 at the age of 84. So now that we have looked at some of the family history, let's explore the story of Cornelius Byington. He was noted as a vocalist and sang in the Battle Creek Glee Club. His singing group furnished music at the time of Abraham Lincoln's famous speech in Kalamazoo in 1856. It was the only time Lincoln ever spoke in Michigan, per historical record. In 1857, he was serving as a village clerk. In the city election of 1861, just before the start of the Civil War, he ran for the office of city recorder and lost. Ironically, his brother Samuel, 
at the age of 36, was working as a village clerk in Montgomery, Alabama at the same time. When the Civil War began in 1861, at the age of 32, Cornelius entered service with the Battle Creek Artillery Company, 80 men strong at its organization, and was appointed as the captain on May 10th in Battle Creek, Michigan. When the men gathered at the train station to travel to Detroit, 1,500 people gathered to see them off, and a silver cornet band played music. Each man was presented with a New Testament by Mrs. Delia Hinman, Cornelius's sister. The local pastor of the Presbyterian Church was there as well and got each man to pledge to abstain from liquor. Battle Creek was in the Civil War just 18 days after it started. This was the first group that was sent off to the war. When they arrived in Detroit, the company was merged with nine other units to become Company C, 2nd Michigan Infantry. The unit at that point consisted of 1,013 men and officers. Samuel Byington, on April 14, 1862, enlisted in Montevello, Alabama as a sergeant in Company D, 44th Alabama, for the Confederate Army for three years. Samuel would serve with Major W.M. Robbins in the 44th Alabama for over a year until he was stabbed with a bayonet in his breast at Raccoon Mountain near Chattanooga, Tennessee, on October 28, 1863. Having seen Samuel's wound, he was presumed to be dead by his Confederate comrades and left behind as the rest of the unit began the march towards Knoxville. He was ultimately taken prisoner by the Union and transferred to Nashville and then to Louisville and eventually to Camp Morton, Indianapolis, Indiana, where he remained until he ultimately pledged the Oath of Allegiance on March 27, 1864, and was released. He then made his way to Galena, Illinois, and remained there until the end of the war. This was the same town where his father had passed away, so perhaps there was still a family connection there. As for Cornelius's journey, he was on a quite different path. The Michigan 2nd in 1861 participated in the Battle of Bull Run, just north of Manassas, Virginia. In 1862, the Michigan 2nd was part of the Siege of Yorktown, Williamsburg, Four Oaks, the Siege of Fredericksburg and Malvern, and the Second Battle of Bull Run. Cornelius was eventually promoted and commissioned a major on July 26, 1862. Now, during my research, I came across a letter written by a man named Richard from Washington, D.C., who was visiting a soldier named David Burrell on July 5, 1862, at an encampment in Virginia. He wrote a letter to his niece, Catherine Burrell, in Detroit about David, whom he'd found in good spirits. In the letter, he mentions the 2nd, 5th, and 24th Michigan regiments were encamped there. Catherine was apparently the wife of David, and closing the letter with your affectionate Uncle Richard, he writes, P.S., Matters to me look very discouraging here, but you will take care what you say about anything I write. The sick and wounded are well cared for, although I will visit the hospital in Georgetown. So this kind of gives you some insight into where the war was in 1861 and 1862. There really wasn't a sense of we're on our way to victory. It was kind of a a uh, quasi-struggle And it was quite a moral dilemma for some at that point, and the war 
I think when those that had marched off the war, everybody believed it was going to be over within a few months, maybe even a few weeks. And here we are over a year into it, maybe getting into the second year. And so despair is starting to set in, uncertainty, and you can see it in the tone of letters written home. So returning to the story, it was in June through July of 1863 where the regiment, again, distinguished itself under General Grant during the siege of Vicksburg. The Michigan 2nd participated in that siege. Byington later led his troops through the Cumberland Gap to Knoxville, Tennessee, where his troops engaged in battle again at Campbell Station. It was in this following November on the return to Knoxville that Major Byington would meet his fate. Before I get into the details of that, I'm going to take you through some of his diary entries that he wrote in the year 1863 to give you a personal perspective from him on the entries that he made in the final year of his life. Now, as a note, I found information that diaries written by him existed that he had written in 1861 and 1862, but I was not able to get my hands on a copy. It's my understanding that they're in the State of Michigan archives in Lansing, but there were no copies available online. I was fortunate enough through a lot of searching online to obtain a scanned copy of his 1863 diary. So the first entry in the diary of 1863 is on March 1st, and he's in Newport News, Virginia. On March 3rd, he writes, Fortress Monroe, Georgiana, leaves every other day. Left last night. Norfolk boat leaves 11 and 4, arrives 10 and 3. March 7th, he writes, visited Norfolk. Sunday, March 8th, returned to camp from Norfolk at 9 a.m. So from what I got from that is he was uh, traveling to Norfolk, probably part of his uh, duties as an officer going to get briefings or whatever was going on. March 19th, they embarked at Newport News aboard Georgiana and anchorage off Fortress Monroe, a severe snowstorm with high winds spinning us about now and continuing all day. Entry of March 20th, which is a Friday, stayed all night at our anchorage, storm still rages. March 22nd, embarked at Parkersburg from whence telegraphed to go at Richmond Bennett House, Cincinnati, the time of starting. So there's a lot of um, abbreviated entries in here, and, it, and I had to decipher some of his writing. It was all written in pencil, or sometimes probably hastily, and maybe in poor light conditions. So this took a lot of time studying the diary to try to understand what he was writing there. But from what I get is they were beginning to start marching towards Cincinnati, or they were going to converge on Cincinnati and march um, west at some point. There was no diary entry at that point from March until June. And then in June 4th, he writes, left camp at Columbia, marched as far as Campbellsville, 22 miles. Campbellsville is in Tennessee. So he's no longer in in Virginia area. He's over in Tennessee at this point. June 5th, marched from Campbellsville to Lebanon, 18 miles by rail transportation to Louisville. So they're taking a a train. Then the next entry on June 6th, he's arrived at Louisville before daylight and crossed the river to Jeffersonville, left Jeffersonville same day, reaching Seymour on the Ohio and Mississippi Railroad about dark, left about 10 o'clock. June 7th, left Vicennes, Sandoval around noon, 
Good Dinner in Centralia. So this is, I think that's Illinois. Uh, June 8th, Cairo, early, embarked on steamer Nebraska with 2nd Michigan, lying there all night. Cairo is in Illinois. It's on the border of Kentucky. And it's a city that sits on the convergence of the Mississippi River and the Ohio River. And during that time, they were either moving troops by railroad or they were moving them by some form of riverboat transportation when they wanted to go south. So that was a big port city on either the Ohio or Mississippi at that point. On June 10th, he's in Memphis, and he writes uh, Memphis Today. He stays there until June 12th, left Memphis early, pulled up to shore at night at the mouth of the White River. So essentially what is happening is the troops are moving south. They are going to the Battle of Vicksburg, which I mentioned earlier. And he, skipping ahead in his diary to June 15th, he writes, marched at 4 a.m. across the Vicksburg Bend and halted in the woods above Warrington. Expected to cross the river, but after waiting all day, returned after dark to the place where we first landed and went readily to sleep. During the night, heavy firing heard to the left and rear of the city. So they are at the Battle of Vicksburg, lining up to take position and awaiting orders. The next day, on June 17th, he reports heavy firing heard in the direction of Vicksburg, disembarked before breakfast, and proceeded to camp at Milldale. June 21st, visited Vicksburg by the Ridge Sand and at the Men by the River. And then on July 4th, he makes an entry, heard that Vicksburg had surrendered and marched from camp to Flower Hill Church to Young's on the road to Big Black. The Big Black was another river. July 5th, marched about two and a half miles towards Big Black and then camped, heard firing in the night. So June 21st through July 4th, in that period of time, was really the Battle of Vicksburg. And then on July 4th, they had surrendered. So he and his troops were moving on to the next location. And an interesting letter uh, came to him on July 6th. He makes an entry in his diary. It says, same place as yesterday, orders towards dark to be ready to move at a moment's notice. After waiting in readiness for some time, received orders to remain for the night and await further orders. Cooks to be awakened at two and a half and men at three and be ready at four. Received a letter from Agnes. Now, Agnes was his youngest sister. On July 7th, on hand, of course, at the proper time, but immediate prospect of move at 8 or 9 a.m. So they were given orders to uh, get the cooks ready at 2.30 in the morning and the men ready up and ready at 3 and get ready to march at 4. And suddenly it's 8 a.m. and no movement. So that was a rough night for everybody. July 10th, after moving forward some distance, formed a line of battle in a cornfield, 7 and 7 in front, as skirmished, went about two miles into the woods and halted for the night was out with the pickets. What he means by that is he was out on patrol, uh, walking through, doing night patrol, I guess, with uh, the troops. Now, on July 11th, this is one of the few entries of one of the engagements that he wrote about. When first forward at skirmishes and after a while met the Rebs, four of our men wounded, a double quick was ordered, seven companies moved up gallantly, driving the seventh to their rifle kits. Owing to a misunderstanding, the other companies did not move out. Two plus 50 men were lost. 56. That's the entry. So 
they engaged some uh, rebels in a field, and there were some wounded here, and some that were killed. And on July 12th, he makes a mentry, moved back to flank some batteries, and remained there all day. July 13th, still in same position. July 14th, Regiment Dillman and Captains, 21st and 2nd Lieutenant, sent to the front for 48 hours. July 15th, still here with officers left behind from yesterday's detail. So what I was able to determine from that is he was left behind with a portion of the uh, other officers, and some of the other officers were sent forward to meet with the regiment and get further instructions, I believe. And on July 16th, he writes, after being out 48 hours, the regiment had no sooner arrived in camp when orders were received to support Benjamin's battery. Batteries were um, typically artillery units or placements. So the story continues in his diary. Some of the more interesting entries on July 17th, he reports a march to Grant's Mill on a trail above Jackson, Mississippi. On July 18th, he reports that they marched at 6 a.m. to Madison Station on the Mississippi Central Railroad. And they spent the day after arriving tearing up and burning the railroad and thus bending the rails. The station house was also burned, but the cotton was not. And then he writes, Why not let the house remain and burn the cotton? As those is security force cash bonds in England. And that was a confusing entry because I'm I was trying to figure out what he was referring to there. And this was very interesting to note because if you look up the history of the burning of Madison Station, it has a historic marker on the site down in that area of Mississippi, but it was noted as that happened a year later. But here we have his 1863 diary where he's at Madison Station talking about this. So either somebody has a wrong historical record or Madison Station was burned twice, or there was two different Madison Stations, but this Madison Station appears to be the same one because he's talking about Jackson, Mississippi. He's right near there. It has to be the same place. So I believe Madison Station must have been burned at two different times, unless somebody else has a, a wrong historical um, notation on the historic marker that's at Madison Station. Because I looked it up, I was curious about the burning of Madison Station because he was obviously there. And the station was burned, but the cotton was not. And the cotton was sent back, from what I understand, to uh, pay for the bonds that they had in England in supporting the war, which is something you don't hear much about on the Civil War, but how was the Union financing this? They're probably borrowing money from England is what it sounds like, and giving England some of the spoils of war to pay for those bonds is what I'm getting from the notation here in his diary. Probably something that was talked about between the officers, and he made note of it. July 19th, he writes, the destruction of the railroad still continues. At about 11 a.m., commenced the march towards Jackson, Arriving at 5 p.m., visited the city, much injured by fire. July 20th, he's marched at 3 a.m. towards the Black River. Very severe day for the men, especially the wounded. Made 16 miles and encamped 4 miles from Brownsville. Uh, Tuesday, July 21st, he writes, second anniversary of Bull Run, up at 3 a.m., ready to march at 4 According to orders, passed through Brownsville, a small town like nearly all other southern places. Encamped after dark in a cornfield one and a half miles from the Big Black. July 22nd, about 11 a.m., moved forward across the Big Black at Messenger Ferry, about three miles encamped in the woods. Heavy thunder shower. July 23rd, moved at 4 a.m. on the way to Millsdale and reached our old camp about noon. 
July 24th. Visited Vicksburg in company with Lieutenant Dillman, wrote a letter to Joel, and mailed it. Now, here's where it gets interesting. July 25th, much to my astonishment, received a visit from Joel. So, this is interesting. Joel was reported to have been down in New Orleans around that time. Vicksburg is just north on the river, Mississippi River, of New Orleans. So, he wrote a letter to his brother. Not likely that his brother got it by the time he'd come up, but maybe his brother had heard that he was in Vicksburg, and maybe he was sending a letter saying, hey, I'm in Vicksburg if you want to know where I'm at. And his brother had heard and probably came up the river on a merchant ship and sought him out in the encampment near Vicksburg. So assuming that he knew that the, he probably heard word that the Michigan 2nd had marched back to Vicksburg and was camping there. So that's an interesting note that he met up with his brother it would be interesting to know what they talked about, you know. Um, I'd have to do more research. Maybe Joel wrote a diary or something that someday be found. Or maybe some of the other family members um, have diaries that are away in some archive somewhere in a dusty library corner that would tell more of the story about um, some of the interactions between the family members. But Joel did come to visit Cornelius, which would have been the last time he'd ever seen any of his family. On July 30th, he writes that Lieutenant Colonel Dillman's resignation tendered yesterday and was returned accepted. I was curious about why Dillman may have resigned, and the only article that I could find was dated June 25th, 1863, that ran in the Ohio Transcript, which indicated that he'd been wounded in his left arm in a report to his commander, which was dated June 5th. And the letter sounds confident. It stated that there is not a man in the army here that has any more doubt that we will take Vicksburg in a short time. And this was earlier before the Battle of Vicksburg. But we can only speculate why he resigned. Maybe the injury was getting to him at that point, um, and he decided to go uh, retire from service. Or it could be that he just needed to go home and get back to his family and take up uh, the fall harvest or something like that. There was a lot of that going on in the Civil War, too. So from August 1st all the way to August 11th, there's a lot of different entries, mainly short little entries that he went up to Memphis, went to Cairo, back to Indianapolis, uh, went on from Indianapolis over to Cincinnati, went to Covington for a while. And then he's uh, marching through the Cumberland Gap around September. And there were some scratched out entries during this time, so it was hard to, to determine what was going on. But he is, his troops were known to have gone through the Cumberland Gap between September 7th and September 9th. September 22nd, he writes, Cross the Clinch River and Mountain. This is the worst road ever traveled without exception. September 23rd, bypassed the Holston about 9 o'clock in the a.m., and the Holston is a sepia and clear stream. Arrived at Morristown and remained for the night. September 24th, left Morristown this p.m. and marched to Mossy Creek Station. On the 26th of September, he notes that they left camp at 6 a.m. and marched towards Knoxville. And then September 27th, he's in camp near Knoxville. September 28th, he notes, marched at 3.5 a.m., 3.30 a.m., crossed the Holston River opposite Knoxville and took position in a cornfield about a mile and a half from River in Rufford of a section battery. Occasional guns heard in the dim distance. October 8th broke camp opposite Knoxville. October 17th, regiment returned to Knoxville from the up the roads towards 
Greenville. Moving all the way down to November 17th, he arrives at Knoxville again around 4 a.m., took position on Hill, built rifle pits. November 18th, same position behind rifle pits. November 19th, still in same position as yesterday. This was his last entry. Tuesday, November 24th, he fell mortally wounded and he was taken to a Confederate field hospital. So the last diary entry in his diary that he wrote was on November 19th. Between the 19th and the 24th, they were sitting there waiting for something to happen in a battlefield. So what actually happened? Well, there's an excerpt from an article written by Major William Robbins of the 4th Alabama Infantry Confederate Army 17 years later in 1881 regarding the charge on Tuesday, November 24th. It reads, As soon as daylight to the Federals... Our new line of rifle pits, suddenly we beheld springing over their earthworks and dashing down the slope towards us, a strong body of men, about 200 strong, with which we soon afterwards found was the 2nd Michigan, led by Major Byington, and sent to dislodge us from our new position. I hurried up in a moment the reserve battalion of the 4th Alabama to reinforce the men in the rifle pits, and then ensued for a few minutes one of the fiercest and deadliest combats of the war. These two veteran regiments, both having come to the field at the first sound of the toxin, the toxin is a sound or alarm from a bell, and that's what he's referring to. As the names show, 2nd Michigan and 4th Alabama, thinned now by hard service and many battles to about 200 men each, but every man of them utterly fearless, splendidly daring, and knowing all about war grappled with each other as in a death grip. So what he's referring to here is that the lower the number of the regiment, the older the regiment in the war. The Michigan 2nd was very low number, obviously, and it, they had been around since the very beginning of the war. This is 1863. These were hardened veterans at this point, and they had been culled down from originally around 1,000 men when I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast. Now they were down to about 200 the same thing was going on with the 4th Alabama. They were a very early enlistment group, and they had been culled down to about 200 men. So the 200 men on each side were very hardened warriors at this point, and when they engaged in battle, it was kind of a bloodbath at Knoxville. So this article, you know, having been written from the viewpoint of a Confederate major who witnessed the battle, he describes this, of course, years later, so there's probably some embellishment, but... He writes in the same article, The circumstance quickly decided the contest in our favor, alas, for the high hearts that were stilled there forever. Major Byington displayed a heroism worthy of the leader of such men or of any men. He came on, sword in hand, in front of his line, exhorting them to follow him to victory, and rushed to the very brink of our rifle pits, where he fell desperately wounded within a few feet of me. I had him carried back to a little piece of woods in our rear and made as comfortable as possible till he could be sent to a hospital. His leg was broken and he was shot also in the side. But bad as these wounds were, he seemed to have suffered little pain. If any surviving relative of Major Byington shall read this, I can say that... 
for their consolation that every possible kindness was shown that gallant gentleman. And this was written in the Newtown B of Newtown, Connecticut in 1881. There's also some accounts that I came across that referred to Byington having been left behind in the Confederate hospital. There was an article that ran in Philadelphia Age on December 14, 1863, that said that, um, I note the gallant Major Byington of the 2nd Michigan, who was wounded in the charge of his regiment upon the rebel earthworks on Tuesday last. His wounds are severe, but not mortal. He speaks highly of the kindness of the rebel surgeons. And this article ran on December 14th, and in fact, he had actually died from infections in the field hospital on December 11th. Now, another interesting note to consider is that Samuel had also been wounded around the same time, about a week before his brother. And had he not been wounded in Chattanooga and been taken prisoner, it was likely that he would have continued on to Knoxville with his unit. And in that case, he would have been firing on his own brother. In Bernice Bryant Lowe's book, Tales of Battle Creek, she makes mention of Cornelius Byington's body returning to Battle Creek on New Year's Eve that year. And she said that his funeral was held on one of the coldest days in the city's history, where one of the horses waiting in the procession froze to death. He's buried today across from his parents at Oak Hill Cemetery, And sadly, today in Oak Hill Cemetery, his tombstone is faded and broken. So his sacrifice on the field of battle is hardly known to anybody who visits the cemetery. I have in the back of my mind to do a project at some point to raise funds to put a memorial plaque of some sort or a historic marker next to his grave and also bring in some experts, some of them that I've interviewed on my podcast here, to do a project to repair his headstone and bring it back to a a point where it at least can be viewed. It's one of those old white ones, and I believe that would be limestone or something like that. I have to ask uh, some of my guests who've been on the show before. And so it's a bit faded. It's hard to read, but it would be nice to restore it as best as we can and maybe post a historic marker next to it to um, give him some recognition and honor. But I'm going to go into a little bit more about what happened after he died. After his death, a fort just west of Knoxville was named after him. It was one of 20 named Union fortifications surrounding Knoxville. They put up these fortifications after the Battle of Knoxville. Eight were forts and 12 were batteries, and they formed a ring during the Civil War around the, the uh, city of Knoxville. So it was to prevent any further attacks from the rebel forces. And so this became a primary line of defense. And one of the forts that they set up there was named Fort Byington. The site where the fort was located was actually at Ayers Hall on the University of Tennessee. And it's referred to as the Hill. There were several There are several historic markers on the campus for the various placements where the forts were, and his marker is right next to um, Ayers Hall, and it's called the Fort Byington marker. And it describes a little bit about him. So if you're ever down in Tennessee, you can look up the historic marker for Cornelius Byington on that campus. Incidentally, there was another Battle Creek recruit serving with the Michigan 2nd that died in that same battle. His name was... Charles Galpin, and he was a second lieutenant. He'd been a printer by profession, and he came from Battle Creek. He was killed in action the same 
day on November 24th, and he was buried at the Knoxville Historic Cemetery. He was 22 years old when he died. One of the batteries was named in his honor. It was called Galpin Battery. And there were two other men from Detroit that also died that day, and it was Frank Zollner and First Lieutenant William Noble, and they also had batteries named in their honor uh, outside Fort Byington. And there are historic markers for them as well in that area. Cornelius was 34 years old when he was killed at Knoxville. The legacy of Major Byington in the post-Civil War years was honored in 1885 by the Grand Army of the Republic. This was a fraternity of veterans in the day. And they did ceremonies around town. As part of the ceremony, Helen Hinman, the grandniece of Cornelius Byington, was adopted as a daughter of the regiment in his honor. Helen was the daughter of Charles Hinman, and whose mother was Cornelius's sister, Delia, who you may remember I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast episode when I explained his family. In the same newspaper article where this story was run, they posted a list of the names of the men who volunteered for Company C, 2nd Michigan Infantry from Battle Creek. The list was quite impressive when you consider that the population of Battle Creek in 1861 was a mere 3,000 people. And atop the list of the names was Cornelius Byington as the highest-ranking officer. In a speech that was given at the ceremony by the former mayor who had accompanied the troops to Detroit to see them off, he described Major Byington and the other officers of this unit as being men of high character who were not only gallant soldiers and competent officers, but they knew how to care for their comrades, protecting them from hardships and disasters, which under less competent officers they might have been exposed. So Major Cornelius Byington, as mentioned before, is buried at Oak Hill Cemetery. As for his brother Samuel, who survived the war, what ultimately happened to him I was not able to determine. According to information published in 1871, he was residing in Galania, Illinois. In his sister Delia's obituary in 1881, he was reported to be living in Tennessee at that time. And I searched high and low to try to find his resting place, and I was not able to locate where he was buried. I'm sure if I did some more genealogical research, I might be able to uncover his burial location. Uh, But I haven't gone that far into it, and I probably will at some point just to uh, revisit the story and fill in more gaps and maybe make a more interesting story about the whole thing. But I just think it's very fascinating that we have two brothers that fought on opposite sides of this major conflict And one of them, of course, never lived in Battle Creek, but one did. And they almost met on the field of battle. So the story of the Byington family and the brothers who fought on opposite sides in the Civil War is one that would have been lost to the obscurity of history. But it truly exemplifies the tragedy of brother against brother, driven by arms, by events that were greater than themselves how these two brothers felt about each other or what the family thought of them is impossible to know for certain. But during research on this story, I could not help but think of my own brothers and wonder what it would have been like to march off to war with the possibility that you might encounter your own flesh and blood on the other side of the battlefield. And I'm sure that's probably been a question throughout history that many people probably have asked themselves, but uh, this actually came very near to happening for the Byington brothers. 
And there are probably many other stories from the Civil War conflict of brother against brother fighting on opposite sides of this conflict. Uh, but this is just one that struck home locally because it was right here in southwest Michigan that it had a connection. And Cornelius obviously lived here for a while growing up and was a part of this community and was respected enough to be positioned as the highest ranking officer on the first unit to leave Battle Creek to go off to the war. And um, his story is kind of an interesting one. And at some point, I'll probably launch a campaign to do some kind of a fundraising drive to put a historic marker there next to his gravesite and um, come up with a, uh, a way to honor him better and maybe make it something that uh, people looking for history can find him quite easily at Oak Hill Cemetery and learn a little bit about his sacrifice uh, during that time. So that's going to conclude today's episode on the story of Cornelius Byington. I hope you found it interesting. I know it was a bit of a long one, but it was something that I wanted to share because I did a lot of research in putting this story together, as particularly deciphering his diary entries, which was a bit challenging. Um, like I said, they were written sometimes hastily. They were written in pencil, and they were written probably at the end of his day in probably by candlelight at best, you know, they're not like he was, uh, that he had a portable flashlight or anything, you know, so um, it's just a very um, interesting storyline. I wish he had written a lot more details. He had some interesting notes along the way. There was one point where he had made mention of a ship that they had been on, on heading south to Vicksburg, and he said it was a nice boat. That was just a side note that he said, hey, that's a nice boat. Um, but it did say a little bit of character about the guy that he had an appreciation for some fine things that he had maybe never seen before. But other than that, most of it was pretty military in his notations. There's a lot of numerical notations throughout the diary that I couldn't make any sense of. For all I know, he was counting either his own bookkeeping or he was counting um, troop counts or head counts or something he had to do. But it was a fascinating study and uh, definitely a very interesting story. So if you'd like to reach out to me at any time, you can find me at michaeldelaware.com. And if you'd like to send me a message about what you thought about today's episode, I'd love to hear it. And maybe if you have some more information about some of the people that I mentioned in this story, maybe you can point me in a direction where we could find some more diaries to, to fill in gaps of the story. I certainly would love to find one of his sister's diaries. You know, uh, it would have been very interesting to hear their take on both Cornelius and Samuel. That being said, uh, this is going to wrap up today's episode. And until next time, when we take another journey into history and explore yet another wonderful, fascinating story from yesterday in a tale of Southwest Michigan's past. Thank you for listening.